Peter chapter 2. And someone mentioned this morning, I think it was Kathy, she wishes that I would go back to kind of lining things out on the slides. And it just so happened that this week, uh, apparently we were on the same spectrum, and, uh, and, and I actually made slides this week. So praise the Lord for that. That wasn't me really being that conscientious. I just, for whatever reason, the Lord had me make slides. So that said, we are in 2 Peter, and I want to remind you uh, Peter's reason for writing this letter. He writes this letter, according to chapter 1, verse 1 through 11, to encourage them to keep growing in their faith. As believers, God's desire is not to save us and leave us, but his desire is to save us and continue to transform us. And he's going to conform us. It says in Scripture, his will is to conform you and I into the image of Jesus. That is attainable because he's given us his spirit, his likeness. We become like him because he puts himself inside of us and what's inside starts to come out. And he transforms us as we go through lots of different things. He allows all of those things to mold us. And then he also writes to say goodbye. Now this isn't like bye-bye, I'm gonna go on vacation and come back. This is bye, I'm getting ready to go die. So he writes it to say goodbye but he also writes it to leave them a reminder of the truth that they have heard from him and from others about Jesus, a truth that they have believed, and a truth, the truth, that they have established their lives upon. He says, these things are reminding you, you already know them, you've already heard them, and you've already been established in them. And he wants them to remain established in them. And so um, he writes this to be a constant reminder, he says, even after the, his death. And if you want to leave a legacy that will always last, leave a legacy of following Jesus and pointing others to him, whether you think that they'll listen or not. Because the things that you tell people about Jesus will always be true. And after you pass, those words will continue to ring in their lives and those who they speak to. But then he also writes to warn them about false teachers. And then in chapter 3, we'll see that he writes to ensure them that their hope in Jesus is actually not in vain. And so, in their day, they faced three objections. And Peter deals with all three of these in this letter. Now, this guy right here, he's judging you. Just so you know, if you haven't felt judged yet today, this guy's doing it. It's the same look that my wife gives me sometimes when I get ready to walk out the door. She goes, you're going to wear that? Just picture that. So, they face three objections. And as Christians, it is becoming increasingly less likely that people are going to be happy for you when you become a believer. They're going to be less likely to be happy for you when you take a step of faith that is outside of cultural norm. Uh, it used to be, and I, I only know this from watching at least what seems to be a, a, a portrayal of what reality was back in the days of Andy Griffith. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you watch Andy Griffith, there's at least a couple of times where it's just expected. Everybody's going to be at church. If you're a business owner, you're going to be at church. If you're a prominent member of the council, you're going to be at church. Everybody was there, even if they didn't believe it. They're there, and they're all singing at 100 miles an hour these hymns that they've always sang. That's what always blows me away. They're like, and I'm like, you know, that's not the way we do music anymore, right? We have we want facts in the songs, but we also want it to sway and be kind of emotional and freeing. And, and so, um, but anyway, I'm getting off on a rabbit trail. <laughs> Imagine that. 
It was just expected that you were a Christian if you were an American. Now, I don't think that it was any more true then than it is now. American, being an American and being a Christian are not the same thing. And if we try to mix those things, our, actually our, our uh, patriotism can become idolatry. And so in their society, it was not comfortable to be a Christian. The people that said they were Christians were Christians because if they weren't, they were risking their heads being chopped off for no reason. And I think in our society, increasingly, it's going to happen that our Christianity, if it's real Christianity, will stay because we'll be willing to die for the things we believe in. And if we don't, I think we'll see a turning away, an apostasy. People going, you know what? It's not really for me. It doesn't serve my purpose anymore. And so um, there were three objections in their day that people were throwing up in, in the faces of believers. Number one, they were questioning, you know, didn't the apostles just make up stories so you'd follow them? Didn't the apostles just make these things up about Jesus and what he said and what he did and these miracles? And, and Peter deals with this in chapter 1, verse 16 through 21. He says, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. This thing that we're telling you about, we saw it happen. I heard the voice of the Father from heaven. This was not a bad burrito the night before. This wasn't me in a stupor. This was the most sobering event I ever witnessed. That's pretty cool. But then he also says, and it confirms what the Old Testament prophets said. And so he writes to them to go, you know what, I've heard the objection, but here's the deal. Those guys, they don't know what they're talking about. Second objection, judgment. A judgment that's coming? No way. God's all about love. He doesn't judge anymore. We've been forgiven. We've been set free in Jesus. We can do whatever we want. But Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, he set us free not so that we could go back to the sin he died for, but so that we could be truly free to live for him, to be slaves to righteousness instead of being slaves to sin. Because whatever you give your will and your heart over to becomes your slave master. And so he writes in today's passage that God will judge. He has judged in the past, and so we can be sure that he'll do it in the future. But then the third objection we won't go over today is in chapter 3, where they said Jesus isn't really going to come back. That was just kind of a metaphor. If he was, was going to come back, don't you think he already would have? Don't you think he already, you know, he promised he'd come back, but he hasn't yet. It's been 2,000 years. Don't you think he can give up on that fairy tale? And what Peter's going to say is, God's not slack concerning his promises in Jesus. It, when Jesus came the first time, by the way, there were the same doubts. When he came in meekness and humility, when he came clothed in, like, let's just put the, point this out. Jesus looked so common and unspectacular that he had been doing miracles. And on the night of his betrayal, Judas had to go up to him, kiss him on the cheek so they knew who he was. These are the Roman officials. There was nothing special about him. There were people the day he was born probably going, you know what, I don't think, I don't think God's going to send the Messiah. So my point is, is they, they faced objections in their day, just like you and I do. So the question is, do we go, you know what, did God really say? Or do we stop and go, he did say, he hasn't fulfilled it, 
but he's been faithful in the past to me, so I know I can trust him with my future. And so those were the objections. So the objection, the second one, was about God's judgment, his righteous judgment, and, and he will mete out judgment. So Peter gives three examples from the not-so-distant past in the Old Testament that they had in the Scriptures. <clears throat> so in chapter 2, we'll start with verse 1 and read the three verses I covered last week, and we'll get much further along this week, I promise. Lord willing. So he says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will actually be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. So in these three verses, he says a lot, and if you want a little bit more on it, I taught it last week, but he says, not only will they be judged, but until this point, their judgment is actually not idle. God is preparing them for judgment. And the more that people that rebel against God rebel against him, God continues to reveal himself to them. God continues to pursue them. See, here's the deal. We think, you know, God pursues me because I have some redeemable qualities. But the deplorables, the people that have outwardly rebelled against him and are even hurting his people, God doesn't love them. But God so loved the entire world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever will may have everlasting life. Whosoever will may come. So God loves his enemies. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. Now, does that guarantee that they'll respond to his love? No. But they will be accountable for the love that they've been shown. And so God continues to pursue them just as much as he did us when we were enemies against him. I love that. I love that because it's easy to love people that love you. It's not so easy to love people who despitefully use you. We actually read in Deuteronomy this morning where it says that cursed is any man who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. Cursed. Damned is the word. And the reality is <laughs> Judas did that. Judas took a bribe to shed innocent blood. He even confessed that after it happened. I've gotten money, I've taken money, and he's innocent. But the reality is, he's cursed. But did Jesus love him knowing that he was going to curse, that he was going to sell him? He loved him the entire— nobody else even knew that there was somebody that might possibly betray him. Jesus taught him so well that they all thought, hey, we're all family here. Nobody can get inside of this circle. And so <clears throat> Jesus loves his enemies. So their judgment is not idle. But in verse 4, he goes on to say, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of the eight people, 
a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. That's a lot. Now, how many of you before have thought like I do that Peter was an uneducated fisherman? I've, you know, he, he was. He was a simple man, but he was a Jewish man. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. And so just in this little glimpse here, I don't know about you guys, but I read this at the beginning of this week going, holy cow, there's a lot there. He's just referencing these stories and he's referencing them, assuming that those that he's writing to already know every one of these stories and can make application from them. So if you've ever talked to somebody and said, well, I'm just a New Testament Christian. The New Testament is constantly quoting the Old Testament. So if you don't have the Old Testament and the law and the prophets as a foundation, the New Testament, most of it doesn't make sense. We need the whole Bible. We need the whole counsel of God to instruct us in righteousness. And we also need it to remind us of God's faithfulness, that he will judge. He will take care of those who oppress us. He will take care of those who are ripe for judgment. God is a God of love by all means, but because he is righteous and he is a righteous judge, he has to judge wickedness and sin, and he does, and he will. And so in this passage, we have three examples. One is in verse four. It talks about fallen angels. Now, there's not a whole lot on this historical taking place of these angels that have actually been judged by God and cast into an everlasting lake of fire. Did you know that hell was not created for man? Hell and torment were actually created for the fallen, excuse me, rebellious angels. But we do get a couple of glimpses. We do in um, Isaiah, and we do in Ezekiel, and we also do in the New Testament book of Jude. Jude was a half-brother of Jesus. And in chapter 1, because there's only one chapter, but in verse 6 of Jude, which is right before Revelation, I think. My fingers aren't working. All these last books are so short that it's hard to get there. But in Jude, verse 6, it simply says this. There's the rain. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then he mentions in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So God's judgment in the New Testament, after Jesus. And so we get this glimpse into what happened is that apparently the angels are subject to the lordship of God, and some of them, instead of falling in line and obeying, 
they disobeyed. But what we find in 1 Peter, or maybe it's in James, he actually says that angels look into you and I's salvation and they wonder at it because they disobeyed once and God judged them forever. And yet we have the patience of God and the grace of God, knowing the word of God, and he doesn't judge us for one time forever. He actually gives us and extends to us grace and mercy so that even after our rebellion, he gives us Jesus as a gift. And after sinning already once or a million times, he gives us the opportunity to respond and repent of that sin and ask Jesus to come in and forgive us, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, to make us a new creation, and to dwell with him forever. And angels look at our salvation and they're just in awe. Like, look how great, gracious and merciful God's been with them. We didn't get that. And so he says there in 1 Peter 2, chapter 4, 2, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, that they, they've been delivered into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And if you take a chance later, an opportunity later, look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 3 through 9, and it says that there was a great serpent or a great dragon, and with his tail, he actually wrapped his tail, this is figurative language, he took a third of the stars, and many commentators believe he's talking about a third of the angels. So think about every angel ever that God created. And Satan took with him at the fall a third of the angels, and they became demons. The demons are just rebellious angels, powerful beings, but still under the authority of God. And so we have this picture of God judging his own minions, if you will, his own angels that are powerful beings. They were in the very presence of God. They knew God. How many times have you heard someone say, or maybe you've thought this yourself, well, if I saw God, then of course I would obey him. And I think the angels are there as an example of they served in his presence, and yet they rebelled. They were deceived. They followed Satan. And so verse 5 goes on, to talk about God's judgment of the ancient world. The story of Noah, we see it in nurseries. It's this beautiful Bible story. And I heard one comedian say one time that it's interesting. We paint Noah's ship with the animals, and of course the giraffe head sticking out, all the animals, and there's a rainbow over it. And there's the eight people going, hey, but there's no floating bodies in the water. Because the reality is that story is really not a cute story. Picture this. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, surely God wouldn't send people to hell for rejecting him and not believing in his son Jesus. And the reality is, first and foremost, it started on a wrong premise. God doesn't send people to hell. God makes every possible provision for a sinful man that is at enmity with him, at war with him, literally, to be forgiven, to be saved. And we went to the Noah's Ark exhibit there in Kentucky, and it's huge, and it's awesome, and I want to go again. But on there, one of the things that I came away with, there was tons of, you know, they could have taken care of the animals, going to the bathroom and feeding them, and all the stuff that went along with it. But the thing that I walked away with was the massiveness of the ship. Massiveness, that's a word. The greatness of this huge vessel 
They extrapolated these Old Testament, you know, like the measurements into our present day measurements. And what you find out is that this ship is so large, I guarantee there was tons of empty space when the, when the door was closed and everybody had gotten on that was going to, and it lifted off the ground because of all the water. I guarantee there was more room. I guarantee that there was tons of space. God has provided so great a salvation in Jesus that whosoever will may come. And I believe that that ship was so large that if every person on the world at that time wanted to get in, there would have been room. Because God is not lacking in mercy. And so in this story, we see Noah mentioned in verse 5. He says, He did not spare the ancient world, but he saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, the entire world. And so if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 6, we have the condition of the world at the time of judgment. Now, Jesus expounds upon upon this in the New Testament and says, you know, as it was in the days of Noah, people were being married and given in marriage. They were working in the fields. They were having children. It was just, you know, it was everyday life as they knew it. And the whole world was in rebellion against God. And it says, verse 1 of chapter 6 of Genesis, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. They took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be numbered 120 years. See, until that time, mankind lived to be, the oldest was Methuselah, and his age was 969 years old. Now, present-day uh, people and scholars, theologians, the higher critics would say, well, that's not possible. Okay, based on what? Well, we don't live that long now. Okay, that couldn't have changed. And they've actually done studies, and I wish I had more time to talk about this, that they changed the amount of oxygen in the air in these little aquariums, and they actually allow certain bugs to, to grow in these aquariums. And what they found is that these big fossils of like butterflies and dragonflies and stuff like that, if they put them in this extra saturated with no UV rays, which is part of our now current system, and they pump in more oxygen, that these bugs actually grow to like 10 times their size. So with the atmosphere being different now after the flood than it was before the flood, it would make sense that as far as growing larger and living longer, it would be possible just because of the atmospheric conditions. And now that we have this canopy of whatever it's called, uh, we call it ozone, O3, instead of O2, which is oxygen, we have O3, which is the nomenclature for the, the big canopy that keeps the UV rays out. There was more of it then, and there was this vapor cloud. And I'd love to go way more into it because obviously I'm a little fired up about it. But the idea is, is things were different then. And there are reasons why in the days of Noah, things changed. And he said this, they will be numbered 120 years. Verse 4 says there were giants on the earth in those days. 
And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were old of men of renown. Now we won't get into that today, but there's a lot to those couple of verses. But in verse five, it says, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah, it says in verse 8, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Some of your translations may say that word, as I mentioned earlier, favor. Noah found favor. In the days of wickedness, Noah wasn't perfect. He wasn't a good guy. He found grace in the sight of the Lord. There was something that God saw in Noah that, hey, he's going to be willing to listen to me. And so he gives Noah this plan. I want you to start building the boat. And I want you to make it, and he gave him all the dimensions, the plans. He gave him an Old Testament blueprint. So Noah starts to work on this boat for 120 years. Have you ever done anything for even half of that? You know, we work 20 years at a job. We're like, man, I'm ready to retire. This is getting old. But Noah just simply did what God told him to do. He says, I'm going I'm to make it flooded on the face of the earth. And Noah didn't, have, he didn't know a flood. There was no such thing as flood. There was no raining. And so Noah simply did what he was asked to do. And because of that, he prepared this ark. Now, if he's creating this ark, there, people are going to ask, why are you doing this? What is, that is the weirdest house I've ever seen. What is that thing? They're going to walk by and see this gargantuan statue to them and go, what are you building? And then Noah gets an opportunity to proclaim, to herald the bad news. God's going to flood the whole world and everyone's going to die. Woohoo! Boy, that's awesome news. Can we be friends? You're just this exciting cloud of darkness. You know, like, and so, but in that time, he gets to warn them the, the wrath is coming. Do you know that you and I have the same gospel to proclaim? The gospel of bad news. God's righteous judgment is coming upon the wickedness of men. And guess what? We're building this house. And this is a house not built with hands. It's the house of God, built up of souls. And and the things that God's going to call you to do, by the way, to the world look foolish. Do it anyway. Do it for 120 years if he gives it to you. Because the reality is, your foolishness, the foolishness that your life will look like to the world looks like righteousness to the Lord. And as you do that and you let the Lord look, make you look foolish to the world, they're going to ask you why. And 2 Peter, or 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, Always be ready to give a defense or a reason for the hope that lies within you with meekness and with fear. Why? Peter's making the assumption that your life will look so different than the rest of the world that they're going to ask you. And if they're not asking you, I would present to you that you probably don't look any different than the rest of the world. 
than you're supposed to. The way that you conduct your lives should be different. And it should look weird. And people that don't know the Lord shouldn't like it necessarily. Not for the sake of being weird, but we've been set apart. We've been called to be different. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him in the way that you live. Worship doesn't start when we start strumming chords on Sunday. It's all week long. The way that we live is worship. That's when people are looking. That's when people aren't looking. When we left the cross-country meet yesterday, we're walking across the bridge into the parking that apparently is secret to everyone. And I'm so glad because I get a parking spot whenever I want to come. And we parked there in the grass, but as we're walking back out, I noticed that in this bush there was these huge bumblebees. And it was awesome because they didn't care about us. You know what they were doing? What they were made to do. They were making flowers grow. They were pollinating. They were doing their thing. They didn't notice us. We didn't mess with them. But I said, Judah, Lucy, look. They said, what are they doing? I said, what God made them to do. And they're staying busy with it. And they don't, and I said, did you notice? Nobody's here watching them. There's no crowd. There's no performance going on. They are glorifying God in what they're doing, and they're not doing it because people are watching and they want to impress them. Have you ever thought about that? Even bees are smarter than us. (laughs) They're not trying to impress anybody. They're being faithful, and because of that, what happens? Beauty. Beautiful flowers. God tends to them. That's what it says in Matthew 6. They're more adorned more beautifully than even Solomon was in his biggest days but they're still servants making that happen. They're the bees. And if you and I will be faithful, even when no one's watching, if we'll simply do what God's told us to do, we'll be like Noah and we'll be like the bees. And if we'll simply show up and do the daily, which no one cares about. Nobody gets on Facebook and goes, hey, I'm going to work today. Look how awesome. They go, hey, I went on vacation. Hey, look at this thing we did in our free time. I'm guilty as as everybody else. But God's impressed by our faithfulness because we're simply doing it out of obedience. And he's, I think sometimes, maybe I'm wrong, and you can correct me if you want. I think sometimes it's more impressive when people do it and nobody's watching. Because then God gets the glory. And out of us being faithful, we get to sow the seed just like those bees are. And out of those clumps of looking grass comes this beautiful blooms of flowers. And so I've dwelled on that too long my point is, he makes the point in First Peter chapter, Second uh, Peter chapter two, verse five. He did not spare the ancient world. You know how many people were spared by the ark? Eight. Do you know how many people lived on the world? Way more than eight. So if the thought is God won't judge because most of the world will be destroyed, apparently that doesn't bother him so much. I think it does bother him because he sent his son to die so that it didn't have to happen. I think it does bother him because he sent a guy to look foolish and build a ship, but it, it's not his will that any should perish. His wrath is actually his strange work, is what Ezekiel says. It's not something that makes him giddy with excitement. It's actually known to us that when one sinner humbles himself and repents, all of heaven busts out in a Mardi Gras, a holy Mardi Gras. 
in a, in a heavenly party. People start busting out the music. They start dancing in the streets and they're excited about it. They celebrate when one sinner repents. And so he says, God will judge even if it's many. Verse five, uh, six, he goes on to say that just as Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And if you don't know the story, go read it. It's in Genesis 13, Genesis 18, Genesis 19. But in that story, we have this family that lives there, the uh, of Lot, the nephew of Abraham is Lot, and he lives there. In, he he kind of slowly over time moved into the city, into this ungodly city. But what Second Peter tells us is that Lot was vexed. His righteous soul was vexed by the way that he saw that their culture was living. Verse 6, he says, Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Now, we, have, we still have evidence of this destruction that took place in Sodom and Gomorrah. Just several months ago, we went swimming in the thing. It's called the Dead Sea. And it's the lowest place in the earth. And God judged. And then this place, to this day, nothing grows there. It's so deposited with salt that nothing can grow. Fire and brimstone literally fell on this place and destroyed it. And it is an example to us now that God judges unrighteousness. It's a beacon to remind us of God's faithfulness and his righteousness to judge. So it says there in verse 7, He delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from the day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Let me encourage you, if you are living in this world, which we all are, and if you are trying to follow Jesus, and as you get to know him more in his ways and how much a blessing they are, your soul should be a little downcast, at least, about the world that we live in and how people are treated and the way things go and those that prosper versus those that don't. And, and to see the wickedness of man lived out it should actually cause you to be sorrowful. Jesus actually said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There should be a sense of mourning inside of our souls for the way that the world looks right now. This is not the way it was supposed to be. And so if that's you, it's okay to mourn over the sinfulness and the results of sinfulness in the world. So the point of these three stories is that in each case, God reserved a day of judgment when it actually took place. And in each case, God pulled the godly out before the judgment was meted out. Noah, he was pulled out with his family because he believed judgment was coming. He prepared. Lot. Lot didn't build. He didn't prepare. But God through the intercession of Abraham. Abraham prayed. He said, if there's even, he kind of kept bargaining with God. And he said, if there's even 10 righteous in the city, will you judge it? Will you destroy it for the sake of 10? And God said, no. Did that mean he wasn't going to judge it because Lot was there? No, that meant he was going to pull Lot out of there and then destroy the city. 
Now, if you remember the story, his wife really didn't want to leave. She kind of liked it there. And she turned back and looked, and she turned into a pillar of salt. She didn't make it out alive because her heart was there. But in each case, God reserved a day of judgment, and in each case, God pulled the godly out before the judgment was meted out. God always makes a distinction, and he always judges righteously. And it goes on to say in verse 9 of this chapter, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Now, Paul writes in Corinthians that there's no temptation that's overcome you, that God has not given a way of escape. He always gives us a way of escape. Sometimes that way is not comfortable. Sometimes it's not something that is our first response. But God always gives a way of escape to those who are willing to hear it. So he said he's always able to deliver those out of temptations. But he's also, he knows how to reserve the unjust under under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. And then he goes on to describe these folks. Now I put there for you a reference to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 11. And I want you to write it down because... God has made the same promise to us, and Paul explains what will happen on the day of the Lord. But for the sake of time this morning, I'll let you read that on your own and, and encourage you to do so. But he goes on to describe the ungodly. He knows how to judge the ungodly, and this is what they look like. Now, I want to point out that this was the part that kind of nailed me this week. You ever read scripture and it kind of nails you to the wall, makes you feel uncomfortable? This was it for me, okay? So he goes on to describe the ungodly, those who are ripe for judgment. He says, especially, verse 10, those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So you say, what do you you mean by that? Well, their character is described as they despise authority. Now, I don't know about you, but as Americans, sometimes this is like, we're really good at this. We don't like lords. By the way, we don't like kings. Apparently, that's what we try to get away from. We don't like people telling us what to do. But God has set in place authority. And you can arm wrestle or thumb wrestle with me about which ones we're supposed to obey, which one we aren't. In the Lord, we're supposed to obey authority. But he says they're self-willed. Now, part of the Lord's prayer, he taught his disciples to pray, not my will be done, but your will. Well, he showed us that in the garden. But he says, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that, so we start to do that. But then he says, they are presumptuous. Now, I had to look that up because I didn't think presumptuous was bad. I thought it was something like, I just presumed and so I acted. But the word presumptuous is actually a negative term. It means overconfident and arrogant. Overconfident and arrogant can lead to being self-willed. Hey, I know what I'm supposed to do and just going and doing it rather than saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Submitted to his authority. So presumptuous. We just go along our daily lives and do whatever we want. And then later we go, Lord, I really hope you can sign your name to that thing because, you know, I want you to bless what I've already decided to do. I've been guilty of that. It's hard not to get in that. We get in uh, autopilot. 
okay, Lord, I'm getting ready to go about my day. Uh, I'm going to go do what I want to do, and I really hope that you're along with me on it because I want to take you along. And I think the Lord sometimes is like, are you going to listen to what I have to say before you go? And I've been guilty of not listening to what he has to say before I go. And I'm like, Lord, forgive me. Help me. Help me to get my marching orders from my high commander. If I'm going to call you, Lord, I better make you, Lord. I better surrender to your authority. I don't want to be presumptuous. A lot of the time, the things that happen to me as consequences are because I've been presumptuous rather than dependent. I don't know if that meets you, but it meted me. It meted me. God, I'm making up some words. You better be writing these words down because we've got to add them to Urban Dictionary. But they're also not afraid to scoff at supernatural beings. And they're lustful. Now, lustful, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I think of that word and I think of sexual sin. But lustful can be wanting other things that aren't ours. It can actually just be covetous. Wanting something that's not mine or desiring somebody else's stuff. But they're, they're not afraid to scoff at supernatural beings. And you go, well, what does it matter? I can scoff at Satan. He's been defeated. Well, if you look at Acts chapter 19, there was these sons of Sceva, and they were itinerant evangelists. Imagine this. They came into town, and they said, you know what? We've seen Paul cast out demons, so we can go do it too, and they were doing it for money. And they'd go in, and they'd say, I cast you out, you demon, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And the demon actually speaks to him, and I don't think we should ever develop theology based on what demons say, but I think it's interesting. He says, I know who Paul is, and I definitely know who Jesus is, but who are you? See, the only reason that Paul had authority to cast out demons is because it was given that he was under the authority of Jesus. The only power that you can have in your life to overcome sin, to overcome darkness, to, to do your thing for the glory of God is by a personal relationship with Jesus. And then when you're under his authority, his authority will be passed to you, and the things he tells you to do, there will be dunamos. There will be power to do it, and you will be successful in his name. And so we need to be careful that we don't scoff. My Bible says at evil dignitaries, or I wrote there for you, at uh, supernatural beings because there is power there. And we need to be subjected to the power of God before we can ever be able to take any ground spiritually against the power of darknesses, darkness. So these teachers that were coming in, these false teachers, I want to point out, they lived and they taught others to live like there would be no judgment, no reckoning for the way that they had lived in their lives. And because that was their theology, what they believed, it led to them unapology. It led to them, it's easier to type this out than say it, it led to them living unapologetically sinful lives in their public realm. See, what you believe is lived out, and it looks differently to the world probably than it does to you. But if you believe God will never judge, you're going to live like hell. You're going to live like there's no accountability. But God will hold each and every one, even in Jesus, there's accountability for what we've done in our lives. What have you done with my son Jesus? And, and we will be accountable for that. Now, it's not going to be the great white throne judgment, where we will, he will decide between depart from me, you workers of, of lawlessness, I never knew you, versus uh, come into the joy of your Lord, good and faithful servant. But it will be, have you trusted in Jesus? Yeah. 
What did you do with that? Have you been a good steward of what Jesus has done for you? So I asked myself this question, and I encourage you to do likewise. Do any of these things describe me? Am, am I de- dis- do I despise authority? Am I self-willed? Am I presumptuous in my daily activity? Of course this is what God wants me to do. Really? Did he tell you that? And maybe sometimes it's more obvious than others. There are certain things that are always his will. But I think there needs to be communion with him daily. Going, Lord, what do you have for me today? Or at least being open to his leading when he tells you to do something that's going to make you look ridiculous. And so we need to be aware of that. So I'm going to read through these last parts, and then I'm going to point out some things, okay? Verse 12, but these, and he describes them, are like natural brute beasts that are made to be caught and destroyed. They speak evil of the things that they do not understand, and they will utterly perish in their own corruption. They will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Now, The wages for unrighteousness is what Paul writes in Romans. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in him. So they will receive the wages of unrighteousness, even though they label themselves Christian and take upon themselves leadership. They will receive their wages. They will receive the the same wages as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. I had to look up carouse. I've heard lots of definitions for carouse. This was Google. This wasn't the Strong's Concordance. I always call it that, Strong's Concordance. But it was Google, okay? So it wasn't like I looked for the definition I wanted. Carouse means to drink plentifully of alcohol and enjoy yourself in a noisy way. That kind of clears it up. All right. Anyway, he says they will be judged just as those who drink plentiful of alcohol and enjoy themselves in a noisy way. Well, there you go. So we'll just move on. So he says, they are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions. So the word carouse there means they drink deeply in the things that they're deceiving others with. They drink them as well, and they live them out noisily. And so they are also deceived by the things that they're deceiving others with. He says, They are drinking deeply in their own deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes that are full of adultery. And look at this, they cannot cease from sin. They themselves are teaching people to be free, and yet they can't even stop from sinning. There's no power in their Christianity. And Paul writes about this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says they have a form of godliness, but they deny God's power. They have a form of religion, that doesn't change them. That is not Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. That is religion. It's dead. It's dry. There's no power in it. It's a waste of time. So they have eyes full of adultery. They, they cannot cease from sin. They are enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They're not saved. That's what he's saying. They have forsaken the right way. They have gone astray. They're following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of righteousness. And I'm not going to get into that today. 
But he was rebuked for his iniquity by a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. So God was at a spot where Balaam would no longer listen to him. And so he sent a donkey. The donkey he was riding, he made it speak to him in a man's voice. By the way, if you've ever thought the Old Testament and the law is a little boring, this story opened it up for me. Go to Numbers 22. There's a donkey speaking to him. And I love what Alistair, not Alistair Begg, who was it uh, uh, now, friend? You know, he's, he said in, in Balaam's day, it was rare that an ass would speak. In our day, it's hard to get him to be quiet, you know. And so I love this because God was at a spot where he knew that, that Balaam wouldn't listen to him. And I want you to read this story because it's, it's an eye-opening story. Somehow he's a prophet of God. And I said I wouldn't get into it, so I'm going to move on. <laughs> that story just, it literally opened up numbers to me. When I first started coming to church, they were Sunday nights, they were teaching numbers. And anytime you talk to anybody, they're like, uh, Leviticus, numbers, Deuteronomy, I'm out. I don't get it. I don't know why it's there. But numbers for me was an eye-opening moment to the fact that Jesus is on every page of the Bible. And, and it was in that story, it was many others. So I would encourage you, if you're not somebody that's like, I don't get, if you're somebody that's like, I don't get it, stick around for a while, because it's just awesome. Anyway, um, verse 17, these people are wells without water. They're clouds carried by wind, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak, verse 18, swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh and through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them freedom or liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Remember, Jesus came to set free those who are captive, not to put them into a different bondage. But in verse 20, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. It would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than to know it and then to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Did you know that? To you guys that are subjected to the word of God, there's with truth and with this blessing, there's also responsibility because we are accountable to every word of God that we've heard. And so it's dangerous because while it gives us life, it also gives us, makes us ripe for judgment if we harden our hearts against hearing it and doing it. So if you're here each week and you're hearing the word of God, I want to warn you that we're responsible for what we've heard. But there's a blessing in that if we'll subject ourselves to it. He says it would be better for them if they'd never heard the word than if they hear it and actually believe it or, or turn away from it, rather. And so he says, But it has happened to them, these false teachers, according to the pr true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, thanks for that, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Dogs will always eat their puke. And pigs will always wallow in the mud. And you can clean up a pig, but it's going to go back. And you can tell the dog, don't do that, but it's going to eat it. And then it's going to lick your hand. You know, dogs are nasty. I love dogs. But that, what he's saying is, 
false prophets, false teachers. They can clean it up for a little while, but over the long run, you're going to be able to tell who they really follow. Do they follow their own flesh, or are they subjected to the Holy Spirit? And so for you and I, maybe you're not in a spot where you're a teacher, perhaps, uh, but we all are in some way or another, right? People are following us. But the reality is we have to ask the question, not, okay, let's go look for the false teachers and point them out. But is there a false teacher in us? Is there a hypocrisy in us? We're always quick to see it in other people. And I get that. I'm the worst. But what about me? Does any of this describe me? Because if it does, it says that God's judgment will take place and it'll be a part of me. What it says here about these men or these teachers is they will perish, verse 12. They will receive the wages of unrighteousness, which is death. They have no power over sin and they can't stop. Do you have power over sin? Have you had any victory over sin recently? They entice the unstable to sin. They want what is not theirs and they're not content. Uh, They've forsaken Jesus completely. They love what they gain through unrighteousness. Feels good, and they love it unapologetically. But for us, God's told us that this would be true. If you look at 2 Timothy 3, it says God's word is able to make you wise for salvation. God's word is powerful and living and able to make you complete whole and mature for every good work. So the question is, are you letting him speak into your life and lead you? Because that's really the only difference between the false teachers, uh, the, the pretenders, and the contenders. God's voice speaking into your life and correcting you and rebuking you and instructing you. God's word is able to do that. The question is, will you let it? So 